Hello, welcome to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you live this episode and every episode that you listen to loving the weather just that little bit more. I'm meteorologist Gemma. Hello, and I'm meteorologist and weather presenter Ashling. And today we have a very special guest, Leo Hickman. He runs the Carbon Brief. Uh, this is a UK-based website covering the latest developments in climate science policy and energy policy and that sounds like quite a lot but I can tell you as somebody who works in weather this is an invaluable little email that pops into my inbox every day it somehow manages to encompass all of the policies that are happening over the world cop actually just recently just a nice digestible bit of cop that was broken I don't know how you guys managed to get that together so quickly but it is just an incredible source of anything to do with our climate policy politics on the ground stuff a whole a whole image of what's happening with climate around our world in this one little email every single day it's absolutely invaluable and there's no way that you could put something together like this if you weren't passionate about what you were talking about so leo thank you so much for talking to us today so leo is the director and editor of carbon brief his team just works so incredibly hard so I know you're leading an amazing team there and I also know that you sometimes have some guests journalists on as well but you just seem to know everybody and if you read the people that actually work for you they're just incredible the knowledge that they have before the carbon brief you also worked for the Guardian newspaper for 16 years and also for WWF as the UK chief advisor on climate change which is just the most important thing that's really happening in the world right now but before we get into all of the more heavier stuff, Leo, we just want to ask you, we'll say to you, first of all, thank you very much for joining our podcast tonight. But also just to, ask, <laughs> just to ask you, where did that first little spark of joy come from where you thought to yourself, I am going to probably do something with the weather or climate? Wow. Well, first of all, yeah, thank you so much for the incredible welcome and it's a pleasure to be on the podcast um well we're gonna have to probably reverse up in time quite a long way I think so in terms of in terms of my professional career I guess as a journalist I in terms of writing about say climate change specifically I would say we'd need to go back about 20 years so we would need to go back to uh in fact I can remember it January 2003 um, and the reason I remember that is it's both the month that um, my first daughter was born Esme and it's also the month um, as it happens I had a very very pivotal conversation with my editor at the Guardian at that time um, and we had this discussion where he basically proposed I did a journalistic experiment for the next year, both me, my wife Jane, and our and our obviously our baby, um, Esme, and that we tried to live a kind of what we've described at the time as an ethical life, an ethical living experiment. And what I mean is kind of green living, obviously, all the elements of what we would think then and today as green living. But also think about issues like fair trade and our and our role as a consumer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, as soon as I started thinking about that, the issue of climate change came up pretty quickly. Um, and even at that point, twenty years ago, it was beginning to beginning, I would say, to dominate as a as a sort of environmental issue. You couldn't really think of any environmental issue without beginning to think about the interplay and interaction of climate change. So that is probably a long-winded way of saying kind of the first time professionally I began to 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 explore research and think about the issue of climate change in my own personal life I would say the sort of I would say you'd go right back to the early 90s even like when I just left school or was at university I guess um in terms of being conscious of it as an issue i i was probably i'm probably too old to have been that generation where we were taught about it at school that didn't really happen i think so in my geography or physics or chemistry lessons i didn't really it wasn't really touched upon i think that probably came at least 10 15 years later in terms of you know generational teaching in terms of schooling 
but you certainly got the sense of it you know that in the late 90s sorry in the late 80s for example you had margaret thatcher and things doing very kind of high profile speeches about climate change and it was then you had in the early 90s things like the rio earth summit so i was aware of it but it wasn't really a big factor or a big dominating thing in my life until i began that journalistic experiment in 2003 at the guardian how did that year go when you lived that way for a year <laughs> well um i i'm probably contractually obliged to say buy buy the book and and, and read that a life strip bear available at all good bookshops or probably very cheap on ebay these days um and so yeah i did a year-long column for the guardian about that experiment and it was called a life strip bear um and, and then it ended up becoming a book which came out a few years later 2005 2006 i think so it was a kind of and it was an attempt to be very an honest account of what that was like so it wasn't glossy and this is easy everyone should just go green kind of angle it was as much about my journey as it was my wife jane's journey and she a lot of people who've read the book since have said that actually they totally are with her on this that she was slightly dragged kicking and screaming into this experiment um and of course, yes, it was a journalistic experiment. So it was kind of fake, if you like. It was a kind of forced experiment. But it was very much an attempt to be honest, to say what is affordable, what's practical, especially with a young baby in the house. Um, and kind of just to wrestle through with those issues about almost, you know, pretty mega philosophical questions around what is our place in the world? Are we consumers? Are we individuals? Are we voters? Are we part of a collective are we individualistic you know what is the most powerful thing that we can do to affect change for good in this world and that's a very hard question to answer it's not just you know buy the right thing at the supermarket because it's got a green label on it is it the vote we have every four or five years if we're you know if we live within a modern democracy depending you know obviously where we live in the world so there's some pretty big things that came out of that you know way bigger than I could probably attempt to answer so one of the things I did after that for the Guardian was I ran a column I kind of called ask Leo where people would e email me in questions or write I mean, back in those days write questions in and I would tempt I wouldn't really tempt to answer them per se but they would send me an ethical dilemma or a challenge or a thought that they had in their own lives and I would try as a journalist to try and research the answers. So I would speak to Professor, you know, Y and speak to Dr. X. And, you know, and that sounds like a Marvel, a Marvel program. But you know what I mean? Um, I was trying to do the journalist thing where I would attempt to um, answer that question um, on behalf of the reader who'd asked the question, but obviously more broadly on behalf of readers. And then actually it was very popular. And it, And what it did actually is over time, it kind of sucked me into being a full-time environmental um, writer. And then actually by the end of the time I was at The Guardian, pretty much exclusively writing about climate change. Um, and but whereas before then I was a general feature writer. So I would be, you know, interviewing a pop star or I would be writing about a serious geopolitical event, you know, just depend whatever was topical that day. But by the time I ended, my time at the end of The Guardian, then I was very much very much what we would now probably classify as a climate journalist someone who really is writing about climate change all of the time I'm, I'm curious to know why your editor picked you there must have been something you know what was the run-up to that yeah that you don't was... just sort of say to somebody oh I think this guy could do this for you I mean that's a really new I... baby that's a big new, you know yeah, big thing new, to ask new baby was a big dynamic so they they the editor liked the idea i think the original idea in his mind was let's find quote unquote mr average you know uh someone who has a works at a desk commutes you know has a young family goes to the supermarket once a week you know go likes to go on holiday to the mediterranean once a year if they can you know you know tick 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 kind of a bit kind of cliche 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 possibly of a guardian reader because obviously that's who i was writing for um and i think another important factor was they didn't want someone who was an environmentalist so there wasn't there wasn't much sort of jeopardy or learning to be had from an experiment if they were already a site you know the guardian's full of very very um experienced and brilliant kind of environmental journalists at that point 20 years ago but there wasn't much point picking someone like that because there was no there was no 
yeah, as I said, jeopardy, dilemma, journey, you know, and that's that's why I say it was very much a kind of journalistic experiment. So it's not, you know, real life, if if you like. It was it was a construct, but it was it was an attempt to highlight and illustrate and work through some of those issues that were very live then and still very live now, to be honest, some of them much more so than they were 20 years ago. Can I ask you something, Ashley? Once you're on a podcast, I'm going to ask you. You've been writing about the climate for a long time, and we are very much overloaded day to day with life stresses, uh, media swiping. You know, a lot has happened in the last 10 years in social media. But when you're writing in climate, how do you manage to not be worried about that? You know, what, how do you, how do you cope on a day-to-day basis? I mean, I find myself, you know, I sometimes just have to, I just, you can't consume all of the information, you know, and, and, but you have to. So how do you, how do you work through that knowing what you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question. That's something I've discussed with my colleagues and my team at Carbon Brief before, because I think, you know, let's be honest about it. I think there are actual mental health issues that have to be considered when when you're a team working on a profoundly existential, depressing, you know, impactful issue relentlessly day after day after day. And there is also a certain responsibility that comes with, you know, there's a responsibility with all journalism, but in in terms of your trying to communicate facts and evidence and data and complicated nuance issues to an audience as best as you can um and i think it it is challenging and everyone is takes takes to this in a different way my own personal way of looking at it and i've you know like everything and all all walks of life we have ups and downs have good days bad days relating to this i do think that is an issue and I think it's an increasing issue as I see more and more climate journalists kind of becoming a thing because it it was very very niche and unusual you know even 10 years ago now it's it's becoming more common thankfully in a lot of publications and outlets and broadcasters to have a dedicated climate journalist whereas it was always seen as a subset of an environmental journalist which who was a subset of a science journalist who was a subset of something else so it was always incredibly niche um but equally so there's there is that sort of more negative you know sometimes depressing side of of covering this relentlessly this kind of slow onset disaster movie as it seems which seems you know there's very little agency any of us seem to have individually and even at the national international level you know i've just spent time at cop 27 and that and i've been to many many cops and it is groundhog day sometimes you just think what what are we doing here? Why are these guys, and it often is guys, doing the same thing relentlessly? It's like what, you know, it's like a form of kind of craziness in a way that we're, we're doing this collectively as a species. But, it, and also it's the only show in town. There isn't anything else at the UN level, at international level that, you know, it, it is what it is. We've, we've, we've got a, we, we've got a, play with this kind of strange system we've we've created collectively but also more positively i think in this in this role if you like as a as a as a journalist covering climate change um it is professionally it i would argue and i've had this argument to be honest with other people who i know who are journalists who don't work on climate change it is the story of our age is the story of the century it is everywhere it's all encompassing so if you know i've covered climate change from a science perspective from a geopolitical perspective from a business perspective from a finance perspective from a personal consumer lifestyle perspective but i've also covered it from a sports perspective you know that there's a cultural perspective you know in any which way you go now in journalism there is a climate angle to your story if climate change is not the actual predominant story that you're you're covering so just professionally as a journalist i cannot genuinely think of another beat if you like or specialism out there that is is more profound more impactful and more far-reaching it's 
this isn't going away, unfortunately. So it's going to be a story for decades and decades and decades. Um, and I feel that as a profession, or, you know, if you if you like, if you want to call journalism profession, then we are just in the foothills of of this, you know, in terms of the storytelling and the need to inform the public in every corner of the planet about this story. So something I do on a day-to-day basis is try to digest a lot of information. And I have two minutes to, to tell it. So for the average person that's out there, what are the take-home messages you want them to have every day? I think that's a good point about the the two minute thing, because we do live in a world of, you know, scrolling and, you know, multiple choices of information. So even if you sit in front of a TV set, you've still got hundreds of channels to choose from, let alone whether you look at your phone, let alone whether you look at your bookshelf or you actually, God forbid, turn to the person next to you on the sofa and actually, you know, and actually talk to them. So there's so many different forms of, you know, receiving information now so it's such a competitive space so i think it and every decision we make about what information we seek to absorb and the choices and the biases and everything that are wrapped into that decision making are are so important um so to say to someone you know this is the nugget of information you need to take away about climate change beyond the that almost the boiled down messaging that you get from something like an IPCC report, which is a fundamentally, it's happening, it's a problem, and we are causing it. And if once you've absorbed absorbed all that, then we do have time just to see off the very worst impacts if we act now and act urgently and act profoundly. So there is that kind of very, very top line message and then as soon as you've, if people have absorbed that, which I think increasingly most of the, the public are getting that, particularly with some of the extreme weather events we've seen in the last five years, but in the last year, two, three years have just been unrelenting. You think of what's happened in the Northern Hemisphere just alone this this year, whether it's in China with droughts and heat waves through to Germany in the UK with its heat waves, through to the flooding in Nigeria, through to the, you know, the 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 wildfires in California, the Horn of Africa, you know, famine and drought. It's just it's unrelenting this year. It's just and I think that you just can't expect the public to not absorb that if they're just seeing, even if they're seeing it on their screens, you know, and they're not there on the ground and experiencing it. So, yeah, I mean, to to take a simple message, I think just seeing with our own eyes this year we've is a simple enough message i think and has had a lot of take home impact on many many people you mentioned the beginning of your journey started with your daughter who is now 20 very nearly 18, yeah ne- ne- next two. month yeah so that's a pretty epic journey to have with a little person in your life growing into a teenager growing into a young adult is there any one thing in your life that you now do every day that you wouldn't have done when she was first born? Wow, that's a big question. So I think one of the things I think that it it is related to, to say, having a child such as Esme in my life and but also having done that experiment for The Guardian way back when, but at the same time. And it's hard to unpick the motivation because you could say I would probably would have done this anyway if you know just by being a new father, but it's hard. It's hard to know in, in hindsight. But I think the for me the most profound thing that happened in that experiment and thinking about our you know, our place in the world and our influence and things was the food choices we make. I think as as individual consumers, it's the one act of consumption we do regularly. Obviously, you know in a cliched way three times a day you know breakfast lunch and dinner so but within that there are multiple choices we make you know whether we pour this pour milk on our cereal if so what kind of milk you know do we have bread and butter or you know in the morning of toast you know there's so many choices we make through the day um that all of them have this kind of rippling impact that go all the way back down to the producer whether they're the farmer whoever the farmer they are or wherever they are on the planet because today we 
we consume food from you know particularly in the britain actually very very reliant on imported food and i think some of those decisions which then feed right into today big big you know societal issues that we hear today about veganism and vegetarianism and fair trade issues and organic food versus non-organic food there's so many of those choices i would say food is still one of the big ones where you pretty much do think about that every single day and i think there's no doubt that doing that experiment 20 years ago coupled and tied in with being a new a, a dad i guess um and having you know a child in the house was um was pretty profound and and, and influential on that you do some amazingly high level stuff every day that little email that drops in is has clearly had a lot of work put into it do you think there's a place for maybe a more simple version of that <laughs> well no, yeah, gen we... genuinely you know is there a you know your 22nd consumable you know it we've we've had that discussion internally probably many times over the years um what we have found is actually the email that we produce which is the the, the i think one you're referring to daily briefing which carbon brief sends mm. out so, every yeah. more every morning monday to friday kind of 9 a.m uk time it's designed the original thinking behind that email was it was meant to be a kind of bluffers or a blaggers guide to your morning meeting at work so you would go into your morning meeting your boss is sitting there sipping the coffee feet up on the chair looking like they know everything in the world you go into the meeting and go hey have you seen that editorial in the Times or did you have you seen that piece in the New York Times or, you know, the Hindu or the Sydney Morning Herald? The idea being that you could sort of blag your way into that morning meeting and look like you've just been across all of the world's media before breakfast, um, which is That's effectively... exactly what I use it for. It's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. So that was the original idea. But then as we started, and as the years went on, more and more global media began to write about climate change. And our kind of completist mindset was that we've got to summarize all of this. Um, and obviously the email got longer and longer and longer over the years. But we've actually, we do, you know, we we hold surveys and do feedback with readers. And actually people do kind of like and know that it's exhaustive so that they can skim through an eyeball for the country they want to look for or the issue or whatever it is they want to look for so that we're not expecting people to read it literally cover to cover and it's very much designed that you just eyeball your way down it quickly to sort of land on the thing you want to read but we do want it to try and be you know the definitive email that that pretty much sums up our approach to journalism anytime we deploy our journalists onto an issue we want them to produce the definitive um article about that topic doesn't matter if they write thousands of words the idea the the philosophy and the, the strategy if you like behind our journalism is to write the definitive piece about cop 27 to write the definitive piece about negative emissions technology to write the definitive piece about weather extreme weather attribution science or or whatever it is we want to do that and there's that you know we can probably unpack the reasons why that but that that's that's our strategy if you like that's why carbon brief exists to be hopefully the most trusted authoritative definitive journalism there is hopefully on the planet to be honest um if we can and for our articles to have long tails that's very important so we don't consider ourselves as news journalists we we're more in the conventional mold of what I was at the Guardian which is a features journalist and the, it's probably quite you know it's a, it's a subtle distinction I think for many people what the difference between news and features is but effectively it means we go deeper we do we do a deeper dive and it doesn't really matter that the news is changing hour by hour day by day it's meant to be a, a, a f what we would call explainer journalism so um you have heard about an issue at work or you've read about it in a newspaper or you've seen it on tv but you're not quite sure of the subtleties and the details so but hey here's a carbon brief article that we've spent weeks sometimes months researching and you don't need to go anywhere else this is all you need to know about this topic if you if you want to it's got the data visualization it's got the 
the jargon explained it's got the, the all the scientists interviewed all the experts interviewed it's it's everything in one neat package and that's pretty much what we're trying to do each day with our daily briefing email um which is a big commitment if you wanted to read it all the way through and you probably have to take the rest of the day off work to get to get to the bottom of it but that that's the kind of approach but also just reflects so there's just you know gazillions of words being written every day now around the planet about climate change um and we we try and capture it it's really interesting how you describe that email because that's exactly how i consume it so on my busiest of days i flick through the titles of the email just you know paris something happened there blah blah, blah like busiest of days if i have a slightly quicker day i'll definitely delve into one of the articles but you've literally um described what actually happens pretty much every day in my head so you always have some amazing um feedback with the people that you keep in touch with and and reach out to i should also stress that it is very much a team effort it goes out in my name slightly unfairly probably but, <laughs> but we you know you can probably tell that that is a definitely a team effort and we actually take it on a as a rotor different people do it on different days and mm. You know, I'm I'm up every morning. I particularly look through the UK editorials and the comment pieces, and and I look in the print editions because I think it's important for readers to know where they're positioned in newspapers because it gives you a clue, more of a better clue than online about what that publication thinks about the prominence of that of that story or that or of that comment piece. But yeah, it's a very much a team effort. We have someone who specializes in Chinese media, someone who picks up, you know, German media, you know, the, the, it's a, definitely a team effort. You've got some amazing articles on your website as well. So I've read one about tipping points and your visualization map of the extreme weather around the world. And I think it's really important as well to have that reliable source of information on climate change, because there's so much disinformation out there that you need to have the reliable source that you can go to and empower people and educate them and know that they can just go to your your website or look at your email and be like, okay, I can trust that. What they're saying is true, is accurate. Yeah, the the word trust for me as a journalist is 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 the it without trust, we're nothing, you know, we're nothing as journalists. And trust is hard earned, you know, as a, you know, I've, you know, been doing journalism what 25 years or something. And it's it's iterative, it's slow, it's it's it, yeah, it's literally is hard earned, and it can be lost at any moment, one slip up. So, Carbon Brief hopefully is a very trusted and authoritative publication, but that's been, you know, that's been a lot of effort, a lot of amazing work by my colleagues over, you know, we've been going just over a decade now, and that's taken a long time to build up and we're always aware that can be lost at any moment so we have internal kind of editing processes where we i would argue we're probably the we have a kind of what we call a triple editing process internally at carbon brief where we we do the so the the writer will research and write the article then there will be a technical edit of that. So it's almost like a peer-reviewed journal in a way. It's that it's that similar back and forth, back and forth, way more than would have happened when I was at The Guardian, where you typically have a sub-editor will check it for typos and grammar and things. Then your section editor will check it just for make sure that's what they commissioned. And then pretty much it might be lawyered, potentially, if there's a libel risk or something, but generally it will just be published. But at Carbon Brief, we do very extensive technical edits. Um, and and then probably the most importantly is I do what we call the reader's edit. So I will, I'm not scientifically trained. My background is not science. And I think that's actually a bonus. It's a, it's a positive thing because what it means is I will do the final edit. And even though I'm surrounded by colleagues who've got PhDs and done, you know, often become scientists who've moved into journalism, which is quite unusual, actually. Um, I do the reader's edit, basically saying, look, if I don't understand this, this is going to have to be rewritten more into plain English. Um, we can assume a certain level of knowledge in our readers, which is a mixed blessing sometimes. But by and large, our audience at Carbon Brief are people who work on climate change and energy and policy and things in some way, shape or form in their in their day to day lives. So they're either civil servants or NGOs or journalists um, or, you know, policymakers or, or whatever. 
Um, we do have what we call a halo audience, which is a sort of secondary audience that people that find our content on social media or on Google searches, but we're not actually writing for them. If that, if, if there's obviously, a, there's a bit of a distinction. So we've had two good examples of that in recent years where we've seen a big surge in what we call our halo audience. The first is when Donald Trump got elected. So in 2016, we suddenly found loads of people in North America Googling, what is climate change? Is it a hoax? Is it a hoax by the Chinese? And all these kind of questions that were very, very basic kind of rudimentary questions, but actually just open curiosity about, you know, there's this thing that's in the news and I've heard that Donald Trump says it's a fake or, you know, I'm a Democrat. I don't believe that. Anyway, it led to loads of people finding our articles on um, via Google searches. Then the second Halo audience surge was in 2019 when Greta Thunberg emerged. There was the Extinction Rebellion protests in, in London in the Easter of that year in 2019. There were the, probably most potently, and it was obviously related to Greta Thunberg, was the climate um, the, the school strikes when all those school kids were out, um, which I think in 20 years of covering climate change is the most profound moment in a way of covering climate change in terms of its societal impact. It was a step change in public and political awareness, particularly in the UK, but in many, many other countries. It was not Greta herself personally. It was the sight of all those school kids it, particularly school girls, actually, it was very, very noticeable in terms of the the breakdown and the profile of of those of those protests. And I think that it's not it's not an accident that that summer Theresa May and in, in the sort of dying days of her sort of premiership signed, you know, tightened up the the Climate Change Act to going from eighty percent by twenty fifty to one hundred percent, effectively a net zero target. And I think that would not have happened without those school kids um, striking earlier in the year it's been you know pretty profound that i think that was a that was a big big moment and i and in terms of our audience surge we suddenly found particularly on social media suddenly greta and greta herself was promoting our content a lot on, on instagram on twitter and things in fact one one video we made an animation very simple animation showing um, global emissions since about the 1990s and what if we'd if we'd acted in the 1990s how much shallower the curve of emission reductions would have been compared to now where they need to be almost off a cliff edge um, in terms of their reductions that animation which she tweeted and put on instagram repeatedly just by her alone doing that got viewed nine million times um so in terms of us, kind of little old specialist website, kind of, you know, writing about climate change, that was a massive game changer in terms of our audience surge. But still, fundamentally, we still have this core audience that we're we're writing for. And to go back to that magical word trust, um, we are very kind of very, very focused on on that word in particular and, and never being complacent about about that word. And it, you know, as I said at the beginning, very, very hard earned. Do you know, it's it's quite profound what you've just said there. Actually, it's it's so true. And I think in a world of different disinformation, as Gemma was saying there, you know, whatever you follow on Twitter is whatever comes up on your Twitter feed. I just try and keep mine simple. I love pretty clouds. I like nice days, and that's all. I, and so that's what comes up, you know, my Twitter feed. But actually, something you were talking about there just. Um, made me think I think over the one thing I've heard on like conferences or meetings that I have is over the last number of years there's perhaps a little bit more pressure for scientists to be a bit more vocal and traditionally our scientist is we have a hypothesis you know we do our experiments and we write a conclusion of it but actually, it's becoming more important for a scientist to have a little bit of an opinion. But the, probably the most important thing that they can do is to be able to communicate that. So how, how easy is it to find somebody who is knowledgeable enough about their subject to be able to communicate it properly, but also communicate it to a level that you were talking about where you were saying, actually, I see myself as the, I try and read that last 
final article as somebody who just might be consuming it, coming across it, who isn't an expert in everything, but may know a little bit about one of those subjects. How hard is that to, to find somebody to that can do that? And do you see a change in how science is being published now? Um, in terms of the role and the position of scientists in society and just how trusted they are. In fact, there was some, there was some survey data that came out this week, um, which I think is Ipsos, um, which they've been running. The, I think it's Ipsos. could be wrong. Sorry if it isn't. Um, they've been running this survey for about 20 odd years now. And every single year, the most trusted people and profession in society are scientists, professors, doctors and nurses you know, every single year. And guess who's at the bottom of that list? It's politicians and journalists and estate agents. Um, so I, I know my place. I know that I'm <laughs> I know that I'm the least trusted. Um, actually, if you look, if you drill into the results, there's some interesting, interesting sort of um, areas of that which are worth sort of breaking apart. So when we mean journalists, that can obviously be splintered down into, you know, tabloid journalists or broadsheet or science journalists or celebrity news journalists or or whatever, or columnists. But interestingly, sitting between the scientists and the at the very top and the and the journalists and the state agents and politicians at the very bottom are news presenters actually rank quite highly on trust and they are journalists so if you take uh, I don't know Fiona Bruce or whoever um they are journalists but they are actually very trusted and it, and I think another and related to that is no accident that weather presenters um are very very trusted in those surveys as well and and have a position of trust and you see that I think societally anyway um and I think, you know, in terms of science, so let's take the assumption that scientists are very trusted in society and people respect their their views. So they hold this particularly potent sort of position where if they did advocate for a for a solution to climate change or a political position related to climate change, that could be very powerful and could have a lot of influence. But it's also not why people want them. The, you know, people trust the scientists because they're seen as straight down the middle, give it, you know, evidence led, you know, it, it, the more and more they advocate and the more they have an opinion, maybe that chips away at that over time. So it's a really difficult balance to get, I think. But there have been quite a few examples over the last decade, particularly of, of some climate scientists who really made a big impact um, in public awareness and communication particularly by using social media, actually being very, very smart and savvy using very, very good visuals, for example. Um, you know, Ed Hawkins at University of Reading is a very good example, obviously, who's done the famous climate stripes and actually before then did the 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 viral spiral, you know, 100 years of, you know, um, global record temperature rise, which actually featured in the, I think it was in the opening ceremony of the Rio Olympics. So it's, it got in terms of, you know, scientists are always trying to measure their impact, you know, for their, you know, fu you know, research funders or whatever. That boy was at some impact having your your science shown in front of two billion people watching the opening of the Olympics. But there are, you know, there's many many others. You know, there's, you know, it, just in the UK alone, and there's people like Tamsin Edwards or Richard Betts or um, Freddie Otto and all the work she's done on attribution science. Um, so you've got some really smart and powerful communicators and who've used social media in particular very well, who are also, you know, no coincidence, very good media operators. They know exactly how to speak to the media, give them the perfect summary, explanatory quote without needing necessarily to lurch into political advocacy. There are some there are some scientists who've who've moved in that direction. You can see that with the scientists who've aligned themselves with like Extinction Rebellion. And I personally, uh, you know, don't really have a view on that. Everyone each each to their own. But it, it is worth always reflecting that scientists do historically across the board have a tremendous trust baked in with society. You know, and that's a position that's been like that for decades. Um, so they are probably among the most powerful communicators on climate change there, you know, there can be really. 
it, it's an important point about communications because some you know if you speak to an advertising agency or a marketer they will say simple message and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat again just hit people with the same message over and over and over again and you could say what ed has done with the climate stripes is really simple in a way it's just showing a time series color-coded but boy does it have you know the the impact it has whether it's on a scarf someone's knitted or it's on a t-shirt or it's on a t the background on the tv news or whatever it it's such a kind of masterstroke in terms of communications and and is repeatable and again and again and again so it's it's just getting that message across in a very simple way kind of almost an emotional way because you're just seeing that rapid heating um visually um so it's such a clever thing it's probably one of the most impactful things in the last decade that i've seen in terms of um climate communications and do you know what even if that image wasn't instantaneously like digestible in your brain it is now just it is identified as the global temperature increasing so let's just say you didn't immediately relate with the colors you know in your head but it has now just become this image of yeah climate change it's really powerful you've discussed a lot there and i'm conscious we could keep on talking but we're going to move on to our get to know me round so we're going to just make <laughs> it a little bit lighter for the moment so Gemma, do you want to take it away they're just some really random um quick fire round questions some of them have a little bit of a weather background related to them but some of them are just very very random so we'd always like to ask our guests first of all what's your favorite season oh spring has to be spring ash is very happy that's her favorite too (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, we always have a little argument over why spring or autumn isn't as good we've had one one summer and one winter but most people go for spring or autumn why is spring your favorite season Oh, well, obviously renewal and all all the rest of it and, you know, but and growth and positivity and colour and bloom. But what I particularly love is I love seeing young birds, all the fledgling, you know, that's such a great part. That's such a great time of the year. And I'm actually going this, I've determined to get one of those little kind of nest camera things that I want to get so you can actually watch them. This, So I'm going to set that up over the winter. They're remarkably popular on social media. I I really want it. We we watched with almost the same levels of enthusiasm as watching our own children grow up earlier this year, watching these three little fledglings trying to get out of their nest box and that magical day where they just have to go, okay, guys, we're going to have to just leap out of here and just hope for the best. And and they do that and they kind of get pushed from behind by their siblings trying to get out of the out of there as well and then they just fly off it's an incredible incredible sight and yeah that's definitely a reason why i love i love spring you'll have to stream that on social media so people can keep up to date with it all <laughs> we need to watch through the 14 hours to get the five second clip that'd be like oh, look Every, at this. it's amazing everything's about creating content for social media now isn't it? everything <laughs> jeremy dodgers or jaffa cakes oh definitely jaffa cakes oh why because i'm i even now I'll still eat them in that way where you eat around them and leave the jelly bit until the end and then save that. I'm not, not massive fan of jammy dodges. I'd actually, I'd actually probably walk away from them if, if that was the only, only thing on offer. Wow. That's a big statement to make you. Big, huge, <laughs> huge statement, but I've put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> and you eat the Jaffa cakes in the correct way as well. We've had this discussion exactly, on the podcast yeah. numerous times. That's the correct way to eat them. It, no, no, it's not, Gemma. It's not. It's not. Or just all the whole packet str- straight no! in. Yeah. Eat it around. <laughs> leave the, the Jeff a bit for the end. That's the, that's the way to eat it. If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? That's that's much harder to answer than what is my favourite fruit or vegetable. Um, oh, I have absolutely no idea. My favourite veg. Again, go, well, going back to spring, my favourite veg are eating pea pods. You know, when you go straight straight off the off the pod so i'm slightly answering a different question which is which is my favorite veg and and in which season but i would probably say pea pods you're the first person to say that as well yes quite quite symbolic quite symbolic you could transition that into mange too if that helps but let's just stick to pea pods that's a great answer if you had to choose what would you prefer beach or mountains 100% mountains. 
I, I'm not a massive fan of beach days, to be honest. I find them all a bit boring and just like, why are we sitting here in the sand? You know, I'd rather, I don't mind going for a swim, but I find that whole crunching on sandwiches with sand in them and sand in your toes and all that, much rather be up in the mountains with a bracing air with walking through some sort of summer meadow in the mountains that that is way more appealing than being on some overcrowded beach with sand everywhere that's a fair point that's a good answer <laughs> as well and if you can get a cloud inversion as well you're on the mountain oh, and... oh yeah definitely the best magic if you could invite one person to dinner they can be anybody at all from any historical time frame it can even be a fictional character who would you invite Oh my god, that is such a big question. Um, to stay on topic, a character who is historically pretty fascinating, and actually, I've had long chats with um, Ed Hawkins about this person as well, who's also a bit of a mega fan, is Guy Callender. So the kind of amateur scientist in the 1930s, in in I think he was living in Sussex at that point basically worked out that human caused carbon dioxide emissions were warming the planet but no one believed him so he tried he tried to go to the royal society and get his papers published but they just wouldn't believe him it was the kind of era of kind of gentleman science and you're not part of the club and he's an extraordinary character and he 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 finally did get a, a landmark now pivotal seminal paper published um which I think was the 75th anniversary of it fairly recently. But Guy Callender, who then in the war had to help in the Second World War, had to help with the war effort and had to melt. I think he made fog making machines to describe to, to hide, you know, to hide runways where sort of bombers were landing. Um, meanwhile, was, you know, a keen tennis player. And, you know, it, it's just a, a classic example of a person tinkering away in their shed had a really good idea just methodically kept weather data just was the proper web weather nerd just would go out get their precipitation sunlight hours all the rest of it temperature records but realize over time by looking at the data in the round globally that we were actually through burning fossil fuels and you know generating carbon dioxide were warming the planet um so an amazing character i'd love you know what an amazing person to have to have, have a chance to chat to to you know and to get a sense of that frustration someone kind of going hey guys this data is not looking too good and no one believing him and actually not really believing him until sadly after he died in the early 60s um that's when you know the penny really dropped and people realized that he was he was right really you know? i'm pretty I'm pretty convinced that I've had this, I, as I said, I've had this chat with Ed Hawkins. I'm pretty convinced there'll be one day Hollywood or someone will make a movie about this guy. There'll be a Netflix series or there'll be a, you know, a drama or something because it, it's such an amazing story when you, when you read, read his story. I, I've never heard of him. Neither have I. Go, quickly, I have not heard of him. Go and Google him. Guy Calendar. I know Wilhelm Berkney's. Yeah. How do I not know him? I've just written him down here because I, I always leave the podcast with loads of notes of people that I need to go and and topics <laughs> and go and uh, search. But How I've written him podcast? down. Also, we need to look into commissioning the rights to that Netflix and film series. Yeah, so that's yeah. what we need to go and do now. <laughs> yeah, let, let's do it. We can all be executive producers. Exactly. We're going to do that now. Yeah. <laughs> and our final question that we like to ask people before they leave us is one thing that you wish everybody knew about climate change. Well, the one thing I think everyone should know about climate change is that, yes, it is, you know, it's depressing. It's it's a hard subject to absorb and to deal with and to communicate and think about. But, you know, we have to we have to act and we have to do so fast. But there every day I see I do see positive stories about incredible individuals who are making a difference and prove that with you know dedication and agency we are going to make that change i think and i think you know you you have to believe that with, with something like climate change because it is so epic it's so huge and it's so you know it's casting such a shadow potentially over the century ahead that we kind of almost at a species level have to believe and show and do that we can you know 
make this change. We've done it many times before as a collective, um, whether at kind of community, national or international level, you can make such a big difference. And we we have to we have to do this. And we've got all the solutions in our toolkit right here. It's not like we need to invent a new thing. Everything is there. It just needs to be um, got out that toolkit and actually put it put into action. So we like okay. to leave everybody with a little uh, take home message or maybe something that they didn't know or if they've just come across our podcast and we call it a weather wisdom. But can you tell us what is COP? What is COP? So COP is the it stands for COP, Conference of the Parties. And it effectively is at the UN level an agreement amongst the nearly 200 countries of the world to meet every year and discuss an issue. So there's not just COPs about climate, there's one taking place in Montreal at the end of this year, COP15 it's called, and it's about biodiversity. Um, and there are other, other COPs that happen on different, very, very important issues as well. But the COP I know and kind of love to some extent is, is the COP we hear of in the climate world each year. And it was COP27 in Egypt this year, and it was a Glasgow COP26 the year before. And as you can tell by the number, it's been going on quite a few years now. In fact, since the very first one in 1995 in Berlin. Um, and that's what a COP is. It's effectively coming together of the world's nations, parties as they call them at COPs. Um, and they have to thrash out consensus on how to act on climate change. And it is the biggest challenge humanity's ever faced. Nothing, not world war, nothing is as big and as complex and as complicated and is and is, is impactful as reaching global consensus on how we collectively should deal with climate change. So that effectively is what a COP is. Yeah, strange term, but that's that's what it means. Conference of the parties. Thank you so much, Leo, for chatting to us on the podcast today. It's been fascinating. I've learned so much. I've made so many notes, so I'm off to go and research all those things that you've mentioned. But if you've listened to this episode and you've loved it as much as we have, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate and review the podcast. Share it as well with everybody that you know. Um, if you'd like to follow us on Instagram, we are For the Love of Weather. On Twitter, we are the number for love of weather. Um, and Leo, if people want to follow you or follow Carbon Brief, where should they head to? Well, thank you. Yeah, Twitter, probably the main place, to be honest. So at Carbon Brief um, for our main account, the same on Instagram as well. And across all the other social media channels, very easy to find. Myself, I'm on Twitter predominantly, um, just at Leo Hickman. Leo, thank you so much for speaking to us tonight. It's always just such a privilege to speak to somebody who's such an expert. So we do really value your time. So thank you. And hopefully everybody else who's listening to the episode will enjoy it too and just take home some little nugget of it. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And as always, we hope you leave this episode just loving the weather that little bit more. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.